Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sister to Sister. This is Trish Carr from Women's Prosperity Network. And this is a conversation that we have sharing experiences of people who live in a black skin. I wake up white every day, so I have no idea what it's like to wake up black. And this, prod, this platform is really meant to share experiences so that we can perhaps have a notion, have an inkling of what it's like to be born into a black skin and live in a society that is predominantly white here in the US and it, it, all the social change that we're going through right now to get the perspective of people who are living through it from their perspective. So my guest today is a fabulous woman. I'm so excited to have her with us. She is a, she's lived all over the world. She, Lori Gatsy Barnett, thank you so much for being with me today. Let me tell everybody a little bit about you. She was born in Zimbabwe and she lived and she went to school in Pennsylvania at Penn State. So those of you who are Happy Valley people, it's Happy Valley, Pennsylvania. Uh, from there, she lived in London and now she lives in Belfast, Northern Ireland. She's a business owner of a company called Lessons Group. She's a social entrepreneur, a motivational speaker, and she's the founder of Join Her Network. And Join Her is about moving women forward, motivating them, handling them, giving them the tools, and being a philanthropic, humanitarian change maker in the world. It's a, no wonder that Lori and I connected, considering we both have the same exact vision for supporting women to have the best life possible. Um, she's had amazing opportunities. She has a demonstrated history of working in corporate as well as in the voluntary sector. A couple of things that really I didn't know about Lori is that while she was working as a World Vision Youth Ambassador in a program, she got to meet the great Nelson Mandela. Many of you obviously have heard of Nelson Mandela. And next year, I believe, is the World of Peace and it's dedicated to Nelson Mandela. She also got to meet the 2001 Nobel Peace Prize winner and former Secretary General of the United Nations, Kofi Annan. And when I say these names, I get chills. Like, it's so amazing that you got to meet them. One of the things that um, Lori said, and I love what she, her, I love quoting her. She says, having lived and worked across different cultures and countries, the richness of variety within diversity demands change from us collectively to become the examples of a community transformed and strengthened by us, sharing a vision of a brighter tomorrow. So I love what you say about, um, it's about us, there's a richness of variety within diversity. So thank you, Lori, for being with us today. I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Trish. It's an absolute pleasure. And oh, yeah, I think all the conversations we've had, I apologize to everyone. They're going to have to hear us now. And hopefully we'll, we won't go forever and ever because we can talk forever. Uh, we can, you. can't we? We get on for a half hour. The next thing you know, it's an hour and a half. <laughs> exactly. Wonderful. It really is wonderful. You have um, what you're doing in the world makes such a difference, not just for women, but for every person. You know, I love the projects that you take on and uh, just everything you're doing. So it's a pleasure. I, you know, it just goes to show that when you make connections with people and you get other connections with people, how it expands your world. You've been able, you've expanded my world 
and my view of the world. So I appreciate you. And oh, you know, I appreciate you too. Oh, and before the that... technology angels uh, knocked us <laughs> off the first time, you yeah. shared a couple of really profound stories. The first one was when you were in just in the, you were six or seven years old. And it was really the first time that you got it that people looked at you differently. Can you share that? Yes, I was talking about how when I was six or seven years old, because of the school I went to, it was a, it was a private school and it was a private international school. And um, we had to learn how to swim. So my mother being who she was, had my hair tied up so we wouldn't have this little girl who went in one way and came out a complete mess, all tangled up coming out. So my hair was tied up and we stood along the pool ledge the coach had us in height order, so we could figure out all the ones who were really short were kept in the shallow end. Those who were proficient swimmers could kind of do what they wanted and just really could, he could keep an eye on all of us and what was going on. So obviously the coach says, jump in, we're, we're gonna go for this. So all the white kids jumped in the water, happy. I mean, this is their element, so in they were. So all the black kids are standing there and I'm one of them thinking, okay, so what do we do now? <laughs> this is your first day of swimming. So the coach says, okay, I'm in the water. I'll take you in one by one. Don't think and just adjust. So we all kind of get loaded into the swimming pool. This is in the shallow end. And to our horror, all the white kids jumped out of the water. So we're standing in the water, completely mystified because all the kids jumped out and we're the only black kids are in the water and all the white kids jumped out. And the coach says, what's the matter? Why is everybody out? And I remember one little girl, I can't remember, was it Claudia or something says, well, um, they're going to make the water dirty and we didn't want to, we don't want to be in the water if they're in the water. So you can imagine you're six, seven years old and you hear this, all of a sudden it's like, I'm that different? All this water and, and it took everybody out just because we jumped in. What were we going to do? You know, mortified at six or seven years old. So the coach then obviously had a very stern word with all the other kids and all the white kids finally got back in the water and some sort of normality resumed. But that memory of how everybody had to evacuate so quickly at six or seven years old that's an absolute shock especially when for black people our history with water hasn't been great it's it's awful so that's that's a first time shock and realization that you're different yeah and that stays with you you know those they say those early memories they really do stay with you and i'm sure that's just one of many that you had even as a young child you know, and it points out that I'm different. How is it, how did I not know that I was so different? And you know, it's weird. How did they even think that? I don't, is it the, is it the mind of a child or was it their parents told them that? You don't even know, right? Well, I mean, I think the thing is now that I'm older and I think my capacity to reason is more, I kind of remember a lot of different incidents, you know, as I was growing up. But the irony to all of this is my parents never taught me to hate white people or to hate anybody who was white. I'm sure they had enough challenges that they had to overcome being that Zimbabwe was colonized by the British and there was a lot of British influence in my country growing up as a child. But they, they never ever said that we should go out there and be a menace to society or anything. They always said, you know, take each incident as it comes. And the odd thing was my best friend as a child was a red-haired little girl called Mandy Lyon. So you can't get any more ironic than that. We're two children from two opposite ethnicities and we're best friends. And we only get discovered because we were coming home incredibly dirty, 
having torn our shorts or dress from trying to get in through a hole in the fence that marked the, the I think, the partition of their property and ours. So the only way we could play with each other was secretly and burrow into each other's backyard and then come back home incredibly dirty from crawling in the mud in this little hole in the fence. So finally, I think our parents got fed up with not understanding what was going on with us and insisted to see this, what do you do that you come home so dirty? And equally, Mandy had the same question. So our parents met for the first time because of us explaining how we were coming home dirty. And they secretly allowed us to harbor this friendship in a time where obviously segregation, racism was really rife. And we kept this friendship until one day Mandy moved away. And to this day, I don't know where she is. So um, yeah, if she's out there somewhere, it would be good to find her and kind of say, hey, you know, because of you, I do not have a bias in my life. So I appreciate that. Well, that's a wonderful thing. And if you think about it, you had to keep your friendship secret. I think about Trevor Noah, who's a comedian and who, you know, is on The Daily Show here in the U.S. And his book is called Born a Crime because his mother and father were, I think his father was white, his mother was black, and it was in the time of apartheid in South yeah. Africa. Exactly. And literally, it was a crime to have a child, much less to be a couple. So it was yeah. the same, you were experiencing the same things in that time, it was known as Rhodesia. Since then, obviously, it became Zimbabwe, probably when you were a teenager would be my guess. Right? Yeah, well, I think that the sad thing, though, is people underestimate that, you know, hate, hate is not something that you acquire like a pair of shoes. If I had to describe hate, hate is like um, manufacturing wine, for example. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of, I think, specific ingredients to get a person to be like that. Because you're not naturally born not liking or not appreciating or not even enjoying other people. You learn how to. You're taught how to. And over time, that is what becomes a problem in the societies we live in. And that is the reason why we have all of this frustration amongst people today. Because people for so long have been taught, like when I jumped into that pool as a little kid, that I was supposedly dirty, that I didn't belong, or that I didn't deserve to be in that school, but my parents could afford it. So how am I undeserving? Because I look different? You know, those are the kind of things that are really frustrating when you're a kid because you don't understand. But now I'm an adult and I get it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's funny you say you're taught that. <laughs> and even it's not that your parents speak the words. You just watch your parents and how they react and what they do. And then, of course, there are parents that speak the words. So, yeah, it's, um, that was quite a, an experience as a little girl. And then as you were entering the country here, the U.S., uh, for the first time when you were 17 years old and you were getting ready to come to Penn State University and you must have been really excited about it. Your experience at immigration at Newark Airport, when you first told me that, I was like, oh my God, how can they be so insensitive? But let me let you share the story. Well, you know how you're kind of going through and you have to get your passport stamped and you get the final checks before obviously you go across the other end. So I'm standing there, it's my turn, and the guys are in those little glass sort of cubicles, I can call them glass. He tells me, come over here. So obviously I, I walk across, takes my passport and says, oh, you're from Rhodesia. So I kind of thought maybe he's a little slow on the uptake because you know things have moved on since then and I just let it slide. 
then he looks at me and he says, oh, that, did you get those clothes specifically to come here? Because you blend in all right. So I'm looking at him and thinking, what, I'm kind of dressed. I've got trainers, I've got jeans. I mean, there's nothing you know, exceptional about this. I look like everybody else. What did you expect me to look like? With an animal skin or something? You know, so he, and then he goes, um, so your tree house, you must live in a, you know, in a tree house and, and you must have wild animals for pets. I mean, maybe a monkey or elephant. So he's kind of just naming random animals here. So I thought, you know what? Let me just humor this for five minutes. And I said, you know what? I'm actually concerned. If you could stamp my passport any quicker, I could probably get on with what I need to do to go back home and make sure that my treehouse is still intact by the time I get back. Because I'm sure the monkey's going to do his worst and the elephant is too big to go up there and clean it up. So I kind of need to be there to keep the peace. So he kind of looked at me funny and I, and I left it at that. So he knocks to the other guy in the other cubicle and he says, hey, we got a, we got a smart one here. Talks back and everything can read between the lines. You know, this is going to be interesting. And I just kind of thought, you know, this has got to end at some point. And so he stamps my passport, gives it back. So now that I have my passport back, I thought, you know what? By the way, it's actually called Zimbabwe. It's not called Rhodesia anymore. And um, yeah, that whole animal tree house thing, it's just a make-believe really. I live in a real house. <laughs> you know, I just thought. It said Zimbabwe on your passport. It didn't say it Rhodesia. Did. I'm, it I'm, did. I'm impressed that he even knew that it used to be Rhodesia. But you know, when I, you know, I hear that and I think, so was he trying to loosen you up or be funny? And you know, you were 17 years old and you know, you did talk back, which is something that's probably not necessarily in your nature, but you did. Well, I had to. I mean, the only thing I was thinking was, let him give it back. Don't give too much lip until you get it back, you know, because he could hold it and just say, nah, should not be permitted. So I was like, hold it in, hold it in, at least when he gives it back and you've got it and you know you can walk across, say whatever the hell you want to say after that, you know, so. I held it in for as long as I could. And as soon as I was holding it, I was like, well, he's not going to get it back now. So to hell with the consequences now, sort of. But yeah. um, generally, customarily, you know, we don't talk back because it's, it's not part of our nature to do that. I mean, anybody who's black who has a mama knows you don't talk back. Certainly not when you're like in close proximity to her because, you know, in my day, you knew what was coming. <laughs> you know, she'd clip you across the face or something because that's just how it was. So you tend to um, absorb a lot of the cruelty. You tolerate the ignorance. You make excuses to normalize what you know and feel is not right. And I think when you do that for so long, it becomes acceptable to the people who are doing it. And unfortunately, ignorance is, is not one-sided. Equally, there are some people who, also, who are Black who also have a problem. So it's not just one way. It's both ways. And I think it's just in that acceptance of this being normal. That's what I feel is the problem because it's not normal and it shouldn't be accepted as normal. Nobody should ever have to feel like um, they're powerless because somebody's holding your passport or they're powerless because somebody's holding my driver's license or they're powerless because I'm in a store and I just wanna buy something. And now I have security following me. I mean, I've had that experience on numerous occasions. And I actually said to the security guard one time, why don't we just shop together? You know, you, you look like you're so keen on what I'm doing. So let's just shop together. You know, 
and and for your own information i know i'm probably the only black female in the store so while you're following me around why don't you take a look in the mirror it probably is your own kind you're doing the lifting so yeah let's shop together you know, yeah because, actually yeah. i think the average shoplifter is a 45 year old white woman that's what i recently read yeah so you're imagine. followed around in a store because you're a black person yeah you know and it's not just that it's just you know, if you congregate and there's three or four or more of you who are black people, we could be in a restaurant full of white people, but just be eight black people versus 20 white people, you're a threat. Because eight of you having a good time, laughing, joking, pranking, carrying on, eating the same food, mind you, having waited longer to be served, you know, maybe assume that we don't know how to eat what's on the menu. And, you know, we're probably not going to be the ideal, you know, customer, but we are, and we're the threat. I don't get that. I really don't get that. But then on the flip side, if you go to Zimbabwe, there was a lot of segregation back in my day. And even to this day, there are some people who feel that there is a preferential if you're white and, or as opposed to you who's black. And, and I don't understand what makes you have that authority because you assume you have more money or is it because you assume you have more intelligence? I really, I don't get it. So there, there is a lot of that. Yeah, it's here too, only it's, you know, what you're talking about are subtle things, you know, subtle that somebody's walking behind you in a store, making sure you don't steal something. As a matter of fact, my niece told me recently, um, this was 10 years ago that this happened, but she recently told me that when she was working at a well-known chain retailer here in South, in South Florida, that when she was trained, her manager told her that when black people walk in, make sure you keep your eye on them. Like, hello? Uh, South Florida is a melting pot of people. And uh, it's like, well, so why don't you say that about the Hispanics when they walk in? Or how about anybody under 18? Or, you know, why is it that is she found it necessary to tell my 17 or 18 year old niece that she's got to keep her eye on the black people? So again, these things are insidious and we don't even really recognize them or see them. So you sharing these things, and I know there are people out there thinking, oh, the guy immigration was just joking around and he didn't mean anything by it. He was just trying to be funny. Well, how does that funny land on the person that he's trying to be funny with is right here. It's not funny. It's sort of like when somebody makes a joke about your name all the time or, you know, you, you, somebody who gets a, the same joke over and over again. It doesn't, it's not funny. And no, it feels not. insulting, right? It is. And I think the thing is, just like when I was a little girl jumping into a pool of water, you know, my, I remember to this day, my grandmother told me because I was mortified and obviously I was telling her this story and grandmothers, I don't know about yours, but my grandmother was very, you know, in big in her stories and always in her stories. It's kind of like there's a lesson hidden in those stories. Right. And one day, because of this water incident, she came up to me and she said, you know, I want to ask you something. And I thought, oh, granny, what is it? And she's like, well, look, if you have water and you have mud, which of the two is more powerful? So, you know, as a kid, you're like, well, the water's more powerful. And Granny said, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, of course I'm sure. And yeah, the water's more powerful. And then Granny said, okay, here's, here's the next bit. When you put mud in the water, what happens to the water? So I'm like, well, the water gets dirty. 
then granny said can you see where my lesson lies and i'm still like i don't know what you mean and she said you know what in life i might not go with you everywhere you go but you need to be like what the mud did to the water in every situation and in everything you come into contact with you should be the influence of it not the other way around and every day of my life when i'm challenged by people when i'm challenged by circumstances i think about okay what's going to be the most influence here what's happening to to me or me to the situation so that's what i've i've literally had my grandmother in my head with that very small story about the same water that frustrated me initially as a child and now today in my adult life i'm not going to accept that you need to put me in a box that you need to tell me what my options are you know when a lot of people accept the narrative you know you're bad you're going to steal you're the you're the ones with the highest possible freezing up again ability to end up in jail you know, everything that is negative is is what you're going to be just by virtue of you being black and your 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 family history or the demographic of where you live or the, you know all of those things and i'm here to say to a lot of people don't let people's narrative of you determine who you become and who you're meant to be i think one of my favorite um, quotes is from a guy called uh walter badhog i think it is and walter says the greatest pleasure in life is doing things that people say you cannot do so um just by virtue of that between my grandmother's stories and quotes from guys like walter i'm not going to let you tell me i can't if i try it myself and i realize i can't then i think that's settled but until that happens give me a break i've got enough to contend with just yeah. being me <laughs> yeah yeah thank you so much for sharing your truths what your experience i mean you can't argue with your experience how it made you feel the really amazing thing is that you did what your grandmother said to do you decided to shape your own circumstance and not everybody has that kind of gumption or um, inner motivation, or even is surrounded by the right kind of people who can support them in being strong. So I am so honored that you took the time to be here today. And I really appreciate you sharing these stories because, you know, a lot of the times we don't think about it, but these open wounds, like think about things that have happened to you to be able to share them is like reliving it. So I so totally honor you for being here, Lori. Lori, what would you say to people if they wanted to do something, make a difference? You know, what would be the, what you would share with them so that this experience of hearing your stories goes to the next step? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, I think the power of your voice and your narrative, that's, that's one thing in all my years of life I had to learn. And I thank one of my professors when I was in Penn State who said to me, don't let your accent, don't let how you look, don't let how you even think of yourself be what holds you back. Because I kept quiet in the classroom and I didn't want to talk because I thought everyone was going to laugh at my accent and they wouldn't understand or they would make fun of me. And um, I remember that professor saying, get up there, speak your truth. And so what, if they don't like it or they don't want to hear it, it's not up to you to make people like you. Do what you have to do and move on to the next thing. So that's what I would say to people. Some people are not going to like you. Just by the virtue of your presence, forget about your skin color. You know, you could be a woman, whatever. You know, there is always a challenge 
when you possess a conviction within yourself of knowing your truth. And I think that's what's scary to people. They don't know what to do with you when you're like that. You're really threatening and you don't even need to have a weapon. Just being yourself and conviction of knowing your purpose. That I think is scary enough. It's awesome. Thank you so much. I want to invite everyone to check out Join Her Network, which is on Facebook. It's J-O-I-N-H-E-R, all one word. And connect with Lori, connect with this amazing organization. I also want to suggest to continue the conversation around racism is to go to a brand new website I just heard about. And I mentioned this last week, and it's called One Million Truths. One Million Truths. And you can get there with the number one or the O-N-E, onemilliontruths.com. And it is a website specifically dedicated to Black people sharing their stories like Lori just shared. Because I think the more that we can humanize and take it to an individual level, what really is happening for people and get away from the news and the narrative and the, the five minutes on CNN or Fox or BBC or wherever you're watching your news. You're only getting a glimpse and you're getting a broad view. Let's get down to the individual level. When, when I hear what Lori, what Lori went through as a child, every time she walks into a store and when she went through customs, it, it, I'm outraged. And my outrage has caused action. I invite you to consider what action you can take to make a difference. Thank you again, Lori Gatsy Barnett. I so appreciate you. Thanks for sharing Thank you your stories. So much. Thank you, Trish. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, you do an amazing job. And it's, it's great to say sister to sister, because we, we are so different. But what we share, what we're trying to do in the world, that's what makes us sisters. So for that, Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. And thank you all for being here. We'll see you again next Tuesday with another compelling conversation. Thanks for being with us, everybody. Please be sure to share this and to make any comments. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Bye-bye. Bye. All right.